from Hollywood, it's rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Hey, welcome, 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 welcome. You are listening to Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson, and I am so glad you are joining us for this installment. Um, I always promise you a great show, and today's not an exception. Um, in fact, I would say not only is this show going to be great, it is going to be vitally important. If you care about Black Lives Matter, if you care about progression in the United States, if you care about the safety of the world, if you care about um, the values of this country at all, um, if you are a liberal Democrat, a moderate, an independent, a moderate Republican, you need to not only listen to this show, you need to go out and buy a brand new book called American Fascism. It is a call to action and an acknowledgement that we may be in a little bit of a breathing period right now, but we are still on the brink of political and societal disaster in this country. Um, So if that has not piqued your interest, I don't know what will, but um, that is what our show is about today. Uh, We are going to talk about the new book, American Fascism, subtitled How the GOP is Subverting Democracy. It is by one of our favorite authorities on a lot of subjects, um, but specifically this is author Bryn Tannehill. Uh, Bryn has been on many times to talk about and give us analysis on different issues, um, and specifically uh, we've had her on to talk about her last book, which was Everything You Want to Know About Being Trans But We're Afraid to Ask. Um, Bryn is a vast authority on, on many different things, um, as well as a, um, a senior analyst at a defense think tank in Washington. Um, so she brings all of her analytical skills. Um, she uncouples history and gives us a pure, pure path to how our country is, is and has been run by a minority um, of the country and how they could potentially have a grip on this country for at least the next 20 years. And the damage to that would be considerable. So that's what our show is about today. And um, we're excited to to have you here and have you listening. Um, With that, I will bring on my beloved co-host, Brody Levesque. Brody, welcome to the program. Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon, good day, good morning to our listeners around the globe. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do go to the podcast app on your phone and look for Rated LGBT and just subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Uh, This has been a tough couple of weeks um, for the transgender community in the United States. There has been a veritable tsunami of horrid legislation uh, directed primarily at trans youth uh, that 
for all intents and purposes, sought to, if possible, erase their very existence by preventing them from getting medical care, preventing them from participating in sports, and in some cases actually targeting medical doctors and healthcare providers for providing necessary care uh, for uh, trans young people. In addition, we had a couple of states that tried to pass legislation uh, that could be loosely referred to as the no promo homo law, at least in the case of Arizona, that Governor Doug Ducey uh, vetoed. Uh, on another note, uh, we still have one of those pending. And in Florida, an extremely onerous law uh, was tabled by a Senate, state Senate committee, so we may see that thing resurrect yet, that essentially said that trans girls are not to play on teams, and if you have any doubts, uh, you would have to check their genitalia. Bob, this is no lie. It was a check the little bits law that, you know, even some people in that Republican state house were shaking their heads over. Uh, unfortunately, it's tabled. It may make an appearance again. I spoke with Brandon Wolf, who's media manager and spokesperson for Equality Florida. Brandon assures me that uh, EQ Florida, along with other uh, LGBTQ advocacy groups and friendly lawmakers, uh, are working overtime to make sure that thing never sees the light of day. Um, across Brody, the I've noticed States, that a lot of the yeah. um, a lot of the big health organizations have now been issuing statements um, a little more readily against um, all this nonsense. Um, how how vocal are they being? How how uh, and how effective is are their um, judgments about this being taken in these um, discussions? I think that looking at and, and you're referring to the uh, folks at the American uh, Pediatric Psychiatric uh, Association, American Association, yeah, all, those, all of those. Yeah. Yeah, they are all uniformly opposed to it. Uh, sadly and unfortunately, or at least in the, in the state of Texas, uh, they're being ignored. Um, they are being uh, basically trampled over by these solid Republican lawmakers uh, who don't care. They have a mission, and their mission is to eradicate transphobes. And uh, there, you know, we've—it's making an impact in terms of corporations and companies. We are now seeing them start to react to this, you know, onerous legislation. Now, I should point out that um, two weeks ago, the NCAA basically told all these states that were passing this legislation um, that they were going to listen to the medical uh, experts you just referenced. They have their own locked in rules on participation by trans uh, athletes uh, and they said to the state point blank you do this we're going to pull championships and certification away from you guys um, so it, it's it, they are being listened to to a certain degree but as far as the Republican lawmakers go no it's it's falling on proverbial deaf ears. now a couple of governors have actually vetoed some of these bills and I mean Republican governors um, what what effect uh, can you tell us about them and um, what effect that should be having just on the trend nationwide? Whether that will take that, make some of the lawmakers take note. 
Um, I think it's going to make uh, other Republican governors pay attention. Uh, you're referring to New York Governor Doug Burgum and Arizona Governor, uh, also named Doug Ducey, um, the two Dugs. Um, in the case of uh, North Dakota Governor Burgum, it was House Bill 1298, which was an anti-trans youth measure. Um, basically what the governor said uh, in a letter he wrote, uh, in a veto letter he wrote to the Speaker of the Republican-held House, and I'm quoting the governor, there is no evidence to suggest this is true. To date, there has never been a single recorded incident of transgender girl attempting to play on a North Dakota girls' team. This bill's blanket prohibitions do not extend to students uh, attending tribal or privately funding schools, thereby creating the potential for an unlevel playing field. Uh, privately, we're hearing from sources in Bismarck that the governor was very much worried about lawsuits. In the case of Arizona, Arizona had an onerous law that was passed in 1991 that ultimately ended up being overturned uh, two years ago by the state legislature as a huge lawsuit uh, was getting ready to basically decimate the state. It was known as the, the law was referred to by lawmakers and uh, lay folks and even the Arizona Republic newspaper as a no promo homo law, and that was repealed. Well, this latest go-around put forward by a hugely anti-LGBT uh, policy think tank and advocacy group uh, in Phoenix. It's called the Center for Arizona Policy, uh, and it's headed by this woman by the name of Kathy Herod, and, and she's a real piece of work. The problem with the measure was that it basically mirrored in too many ways the no promo homo law that the state legislature had repealed that Ducey himself had actually signed, uh, and the governor was unwilling to go down that road again, uh, basically because the American Civil Liberties Union and a few other you know groups were like, yeah, please pass this so we can see you again. And the governor just decided not to go that route. Um, the compromise was a couple of executive orders that he signed uh, that basically is an opt-in out for parents whereas the legislation would have been a blanket, you know, prohibition and would have made things kind of a real pain in the neck for parents to even have their kids, you know, learn about LGBTQ history and other things. I mean, it was a pretty wide-ranging law. Hence, as Representative Danny Hernandez told me on the phone, it was kind of a no-promo-homo version 3.0 on steroids. So in answer to your question, Will these other governors pay attention? I can tell you that uh, Governor Lee of Tennessee, probably not. He will sign his bills. Uh, we're fairly convinced that Abbott will sign his in Texas. Ivy has already signed two in Alabama. There's a couple more coming her way. Um, in a couple of the other states, it would really depend on, you know, on how they're structured bill-wise. Uh, Arkansas, as you know, their legislature uh, actually overrode a gubernatorial veto. You know, Asa Hutchinson, the governor of Arkansas, said, no, this is not good. This is not good policy. And all the Republican in the Republican held and led uh, legislature, both houses, said, well, screw you. We're doing it anyway. Uh, so they overrode the, video, uh, the veto. Um, the bigotry and, and the, the hatred of these bills cannot be under and underemphasized and you know the the other part of it is the fact that 
uh, you know, you're running um, one minority that's extremely well-funded and politically powerful up against a fractional percentage minority is what I call it, meaning the trans community, um, and it becomes extremely difficult. You know, will these governors pay attention? I don't know. I, I can see maybe a couple of them growing a spine. Um, the big question mark would be DeSantis in Florida, whether or not that thing gets out of the Senate committee. Um, I mean, DeSantis is a little bit of a, you know, Republican nutcase anyway. He's a trumpet thumper. Um, he may actually just roll with it. But there's some very, very, very heavy political considerations for him if he does it. The LGBTQ advocacy group, Equality Florida, along with numerous lawmakers in that state, uh, would probably make his life miserable. And I think that's the number one reason that the thing got killed in committee, at least for now. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, I'm glad these political forces are, are coming up against that. It's, um, you know, it it is uh, it, it's daunting on a lot of levels because um, I, and I really go down to that one point that the one governor made is, you know, this is, this is a fight against no one really. I mean, I, what I mean by that is there are no instances of any harm being done to anybody that these bills are purporting to quote unquote solve against. Um, no, and not, it is, you know, well, let me put it to you this way. Um, the Los Angeles Blade, which I'm the editor of this week, uh, was completely trans coverage. And I had uh, an 18-year-old uh, high school senior uh, from Fairfax County, Virginia, uh, who wrote an op-ed uh, about this very issue. And one of the things that the young man pointed out, and I think it's important for our listenership, and he's a young trans man, but basically – what he was looking at, okay, is that all he sees this as is Republicans doing targeting, okay, and they're doing it. And I and, and I I will quote uh, I will quote the young man. You know, there's nothing I can do but just watch as they target kids like me with a smile on their face and a Bible in hand. Um, this has been painful for me. It's like watching a murder in slow motion. Uh, so it, it's it's a situation where, and this is, you know, this is a young trans man in a very blue area of the Commonwealth of Virginia, a s- suburban Washington, D.C., recognizing, you know, how this goes. Landon Ritchie, who's been on our program, who's a trans activist, a trans man, same age as this young man, college freshman at the University of Houston, uh, pointed out uh, when I spoke to him for an interview in uh, the piece that I did this week that, you know, there's this all this legislation is going to accomplish uh, is going to produce a lot of youth suicides and some real mental health issues and challenges for these trans kids. And as Landon told me, you know, he's lucky, he thinks, in many ways that he's got a support system with his parents, but also the fact that he was able to transition when he did. If these laws take effect, you know, he's got a younger sibling who is uh, identifies non-binary, and, you know, the family's at a crossroads. What do they do? Do they do like that family that I reported on and so did NBC News in Arkansas? They, they literally are moving to New Mexico. 
because they they right. they're because the Arkansas lost. So these are all the things that I think you know need to be wrapped up when we have these discussions. Right. Well, and there's a bigger picture issue here because I mean to your point, families are being encouraged, and many of them are doing this because if I was a parent, I would do this um, to to move to safer places um, when. Before marriage equality, quite frankly, I was under house arrest in California because I was not going to move to a state that um, did not offer, you know, some legal protections for my kids and for my family. Um, so, you know, the, the, the equal law across the country was not there. And so for, if I was a parent of, of uh, kids who were non-binary or trans, you know, I definitely would move to a safe place. That is definitely going to get the, the notice of corporations because that is not optimal for um, multi-state corporations to have to deal with that. It is, it is painful. It is awful. And um, that is not part of kind of the cultural stand or the corporate standard in America. And so that will get pushback. But I want to take it to a bigger level, which goes to our subject today, which is people watching this who don't really care about trans issues. Um, they may be on board intellectually, but they're not going to lose sleep over it, need to wake up. Um, because this is part of that, similar to the, the, the poem about Nazi Germany, about, you know, first they came for the Jews and I was not a Jew, etc. cetera. Uh, first they came for the trans folks and I was not trans, so I didn't care. Well, guess what? The next people on the list are the people of color. Um, and the next people on the list after that are women. And, um, you know, and some of that is happening all simultaneously. This is the exercise of the muscles of the small band of the minority that have taken governmental control in this country. And um, so I'm, before I bring Brent on, I'm going to read a quote from her book. Um, and then we'll bring her on to talk about it. Uh, <clears throat> in her book, The Amer American Fascism, she says, by 2040, we are looking at a brown majority nation that has been completely disenfranchised, impoverished, and uh, demonized by an aging white aristocracy, while police forces have been given carte blanche to keep their Republican masters in power. That is what we're looking at. That is what the challenge is. And with that, I'd like to uh, welcome uh, author Bryn Tannenhill to the program. Welcome, Bryn. Thanks, Rob. Good to be back. It is always a pleasure. Can you hear me? So, Bryn, what, what inspired you? What, when, I mean, I, I can gather a thousand things that inspired you to write this book, but what um, got you to the keyboard first? So back in 2016, um, two things kind of got my creative juices flowing, and not in a good way. One was that Trump used a turn of phrase during his speeches that was something along the lines of, you know, one nation, one people, one flag under one God, right? And I'm like, that sounds way too familiar. Ein Reich, ein Volk, ein Gott. One nation, one people, one God, right? Which was the... Um, unofficial motto of Germany up until 1933 when it became Ein Reich, Ein Volk, Ein Fierger. 
uh, which was the national motto of Germany until 1945. So I'm like, oh, this is not good. We're starting to see the kind of language that that that, that is very very much uh, fascist. Um, right. And then I started asking myself some questions of, well, how far could you go if you packed the Supreme Court, right? with with ultra conservatives and the answer i got back was yeah you could um you could go pretty far in targeting trans people with only minor changes on the on the supreme court and i showed it to a friend of mine who's a civil rights lawyer uh, and how you could do a lot of the things germany did uh, if you tried to do them trans people banning them from getting you know uh uh, protection, banning them from healthcare, banning them from sports, banning them from the military. You know, how many of these things could you conceivably do in the U.S.? And the answer was most of them were at least marginally feasible given some of the things they were proposing. And what scared me even more is that after I did that in 2016, in 2018, I found out that they were that uh, some conservative groups were actually using some of the strategies that I proposed, namely uh, suppressing trans people in the name of public health. But the moment that really stuck with me was in 2016. I was at this, October 31st, I was at this conference for LGBT leaders, and me and my friend Shannon Minter were at the back of the room throwing cold water on the activists in front uh, uh, with, with reality at times. And during an intermission, you know, a friend of the, the one of the people that had set up the conference I talked to him on the side. I was like, look, all of this, all the things we're talking about aren't going to happen if, if Trump gets elected. What happens if he does? And oh, He's not going to get elected. Yeah, but what if he does? He's got a chance, okay? This, it's possible. Right. Uh, we'll figure it out. Well, we never did figure it out. Um, and so at that point, my ears were pricked up that this was re- going to be really, really bad and that there were um, – there were things about this that reminded me of what I knew about fascist history. And as I started, and then for the next two years, I wrote and rewrote a bunch of things, trying to understand um, what had happened and how we get out of it. And unfortunately, after two years of trying to understand what had happened and how do we get out of it, and looking at all the various ways people proposed um, to pull out of this apparent death file we're in for democracy, um, the answer was that all of these proposals fail for one of about five or six different reasons, that they're just not things that aren't possible because of the way the system is. And that led me to kind of the ultimate conclusion of the book, which is we are in deep, deep trouble, and that Joe Biden um, is nothing but an interregnum or an operational pause for the GOP. Uh, and that their goal is to uh, establish permanent minoritarian rule, and that rule is going to look like these anti-trans bills, except trans people are just the first ones to get it. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's a great point, and uh, and I think vital call to action, um, just in consciousness, if if um, nothing else. And I think. Uh, the the thing that I would underscore from your point that you just made is, uh, you know, a lot of us were so, you know, Trump inundated um, throughout, especially the last year, 
uh, you know, and the press was so focused on the the idiocies and hypocrisies and just outrageousness of Trump every day, all day, um, and it got almost to the point where we were so focused on Trump, we were looking at not looking at the bigger issue, which is the whole Republican um, infrastructure behind him and why he had such popularity there. And even though he was their front man and everything else, the fact is that even without him, there is still this intent to do exactly what, what you're describing. Um, one of the things, or a couple of things you do in the book is, uh, one, you um, tell us what fascism looks like in practice. Can you go into that a little bit um, for the listeners on, is, you know, if fascism comes about in our country, what does that look like for us? So when people hear fascism, they think, you know, bad, you know, uh, art deco architecture. They think, you know, glossy boots and goose stepping and silly mustaches and oompa bands and, and the Holocaust. And that's not actually what, def- you know, an invading uh, land wars in Asia. And that's not what defines fascism. Fascism is a form of right-wing populism. And one of the things my book does is it looks at, what a broad spectrum of experts on fascism have uh, described as the characteristics of it. Uh, You know, Jason Stanley, Umberto Eco, uh, Paxton, Arendt, a whole bunch of different people. And I kind of categorized it and looked at what what all of these people had in common in terms of what they saw as characteristics of fascism. And I came up with 13 um, that kind of, 13 distinct categories uh, that were often interrelated and things like uh, misogyny and sexual anxiety, um, um, a mythic past, uh, us versus them, rural versus urban, the good people versus the invaders, um, conspiracy theories, uh, uh, contempt for the weak, destruction of labor unions, promotion of corporate interests, um, uh, all political power flowing from a single leader uh, who is inevitably male. Uh, these are kind of the, the hallmarks of what fascism is. Um, and it's interspersed quite a bit with, with quotes from Arendt, and Eco and uh, Jason Stanley uh, and a number of other uh, scholars on the matter. Um, but people, you know, always want to go w- compare, you know, Trump and other fascist leaders, and that's that's kind of a mistake uh, for a number of reasons. One, as one historian points out, that if we set the bar for fascism at Hitler and the Holocaust, that's setting a bar way too high for really really bad things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and comparing Trump to Hitler, that's, I believe, a huge mistake because that's such an awful high bar that, you know, oh, well, it's not fascism unless we have, you know, 12 million dead people um, deliberately right. killed by the government. Well, no, that's if, – if that's the threshold for fascism, we're setting it way too high. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, no, I think that's a, fascism, a super important point. Yeah. And let me continue here. Um, there was only one Hitler. There was only one Benito Mussolini. There was only one Franco. Um, 
and these individuals are products of the time and place and location and the culture. And one of the things that has been pointed out is that fascism looks like the country from whence it came or that particular brand of fascism that, um, and it was noted as early as the 30s by Louis Sinclair that American fascism, if it emerged, was likely to be Southern, white, uh, and very, very heavily religious. And that shouldn't come as any surprise given that Germany uh, in some ways was inspired by the Jim Crow South. Uh, but still, when we did see fascism emerge in America, it was um, driven by a white, southern, evangelical male base. It, it, and the, the points in your book where you define fascism if, if you read through them, it's very hard to look at these and not see in, in graphic terms how they are evident right now. Um, you know, it, to go over a few of them again, you know, misogyny, sexual anxiety, contempt for the poor, the weak, and human rights in general, um, belief in a mythic past followed by a descent into depravity, um, anti-egalitarianism and xenophobic fear of change in social ordering, um, religion and government intertwined, uh, rejection of expertise in anti-intellectualism. I mean, if you listen to conservative talk radio, we, we just talked about their programming. <laughs> That's pretty much you know, it. Seriously. Um, and the, the reason why I go as far as invoking fascism is that I want readers to understand that where we are at is dangerous, exceptionally, exceptionally dangerous, because fascism, as uh, Umberto Eco points out, and also Timothy Snyder, both experts on this, um, that fascism is at permanent war with something. They need enemies. They need a fight. They need something to stomp out. Uh, and Eco uh, points out that uh, enemies of the state, the good people, uh, need to be simultaneously overwhelmingly powerful, right? Essential threat to the Volk at the same time while being disgusting, weak, pitiable uh, wretches who are beneath contempt. Um, and given what's said about trans people, given the fact that Tucker Carlson just the other day um, talked about how trans people would be the end of the human species, given how Andrew Sullivan proposed a solution to the transgender question, right? You can understand why as a trans person I'm looking at this going, oh, this is not good. And I need to remind people that even if they did manage to stomp trans people out of existence, fascism always needs the next war. They will find the next group of people to stomp out. And that they're not going to stop the trans people because it's going to be gay people next, and it's going to be immigrants, and it's going to be, and they'll just keep finding new ones and new ones and new ones to energize well, the I, I, Yeah, actually, I think the next one or the next one that they've got going right now is uh, people of color and voter suppression, and um, they're now putting bills across the country um, <laughs> trying to suppress and attack. Um, people who protest in Black Lives Matter and and suppress yes. that that whole part of the population. I mean, it's it is um, 
your your outline is you know imminently prophetic. I mean, it's like it's happening right this minute. So and in, um, in Germany, good. Yeah, in, in a great bringing up Black Lives Matter. Um, if you look at Germany, the biggest threat to Nazi political power was the communists, whom they made sure were stomped out ruthlessly immediately after the 1933 elections. Um, if you look in the United States, Stacey Abrams and her efforts to uh, energize, motivate, and get out the vote of black people has been the biggest threat to Republican power, and now they are legalizing people, running them over, and killing them. If they're protesting yeah, in the exactly. streets, so yeah, that, that, I mean, that that is to me that's the you know the trans folks are the 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 front lines of the attack. I mean, they're 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 the ones that, um, and this is typical of the Republican behavior over the years is to uh, find the people that uh, they think the population will not care about and ruthlessly attack them. And once they have, have uh, exercised their muscles there, then they move on to the people that the population may have a little more fondness towards. I mean, gay, gay men in the 80s were easy targets. I mean, you know, it's like they had legislation to quarantine us and put us in camps, and they had, you know, legislation to, um, you know, prevent us from, from you know, teaching and, and having professions as waiters and, you know, it was that those were the bills that were out there then. I mean, this is this is a common practice, and you actually bring and that out. In I the would book. Rem- you give a full history, and I would remind you, yeah, and the radical elements of the Republican Party that were proposing putting gay men in concentration camps in the '80s, you know, the Jesse Helmses of the world. That's the wing of the party that has taken over the GOP. I mean, keep in mind, Ronald Reagan supported the Voting Rights Act and called it the crown jewel of American freedom, right? Um, in 2019, when the GOP voted to whether or not to review or to renew the Voting Rights Act, only one Republican in either the House or the Senate voted to renew the Voting Rights Act. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, uh, even though it's something your... Ronald Reagan called the crown jewel of our, of our, of our country. <laughs> Right. Well, and, and, and you brought up Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson has, has come out recently with statements that are so shockingly white supremacist that it, 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 it's almost unbelievable, you know, given that he's coming from this legacy of Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh and um, all these mouthpieces. I mean, he's, he's kind of ratcheted it up to this level of, of – that that I mean the sensibilities um, are being normalized. I mean the, these it's it's um, you know anyway. I mean it's it's all to your point. Um, I want to take you back to the beginning of the book though, where you um, really trace this back from slavery and in in a very thorough um, uh, methodical way. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I'm not the first person to suggest that a lot of our current political problems are a a descendant of of slavery and Jim Crow. But um, because 
we never really dealt with the problem of racism and slavery and the South. Um, and because of the failure of Reconstruction, we, we really did not become anything like a democracy until sometime in the late 60s after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and that when we started to actively um, create, or create integration, um, we saw a movement of white evangelical conservatives, particularly people like Jerry Falwell Sr., um, coalescing into a political movement that was centered around their religion for the first time. Uh, people forget that the moral majority and other uh, conservative Christian organizations like Heritage Foundation, uh, founded by uh, Paul Weyrich, uh, who was a confederate of uh, Falwell Seniors, but he was Catholic, but I digress, they didn't create uh, these right-wing Christian organizations to fight against LGBT people or abortion. They fought to ensure that segregated religious schools stayed segregated and retained their tax-exempt status, and they lost. But as they lost repeatedly in court, they began to court politicians who would entertain um, that desire to keep their schools segregated and also uh, tax-free uh, while at the same time allowing people to donate uh, to them and, and uh, treat them as charitable donations. Um, and Ronald Reagan, when he spoke to the Southern Baptist Convention in 1980, um, white Southern evangelicals had already turned on Jimmy Carter um, and we're looking to Reagan, and Reagan in this speech to the Southern Baptist Convention didn't talk about gays. He didn't talk about abortion. He talked about religious freedom and keeping, uh, letting schools keep their, their charitable status and letting schools make their own decisions based off of their religious heritage. Uh, and eventually they even lost that. And it wasn't until uh, sometime in the late 70s, early 80s, that you, that you really started to see a big shift against abortion um, and the shift of the religious right. Um, and now that the religious right has effectively taken over the Republican Party, right, the white Southern evangelical right. is the largest single voting bloc within the Republican Party, followed closely by white conservative Catholics. Um, who hold similar views on abortion and LGBT people. Um, well, these were the same people that were um, protesting segregation. Let's not forget um, uh, Catholics aren't blameless. I believe something like 20 to 25% of all Catholics in Maryland uh, during the re at the time of the, uh, the founding of the United States were black slaves uh, <laughs> uh, in, Mar in Maryland in 1785, right? Uh, so what we see now is a Republican Party that's dominated by people whose origins in politics were the preservation of slavery and Jim Crow. Um, and as it's become slightly less uh, acceptable to uh, advocate for slavery or Jim Crow, um, they've shifted the most outright hatred towards LGBT people um, but you see the white nationalism creeping back. Tried to hide it for a while because they needed to politically. Right. Um, 
one thing that that um, I, I think you allude to in your book, but um, I, I'm not sure you targeted head on, is the systems of our quote unquote democracy that that have always been there um, were built really to support um, the white infrastructure and the white um, oligarchy. I mean, it's the electoral college. Um, being one of them, and even the structure of the the Senate, um, where in in today's world with the urban um, development, where so much of the people of color population is centralized in big urban areas that are represented by far fewer people than kind of the white areas where everybody's spread out and the population is actually much lower that they have equal voice to, to millions of people in like California and New York. Um, you know, is there a, a way out of that disparity? So the short answer is probably not because Republicans would have to vote to do things that would reduce their structural advantage. Uh, currently, because of gerrymandering in red states and a lack of gerrymandering in uh, blue states, or much less gerrymandering in blue states, uh, because it's harder to draw maps where uh, Democrats are very heavily concentrated in cities, um, because the Senate has non-proportional representation, and um, there is a large number, a much larger number of red states that have tiny populations, uh, the Senate leans six, seven, eight points red, redder than it should be, which means in order to break even in the Senate, Democrats have to win election, national elections by somewhere between six to eight points, just to have 50-50, right? Whereas if we, right. if we were 50-50 in the voting, Republicans would carry about a 19-seat advantage in the Senate. Right. In the House, uh, there's huge structural advantages for Republicans. Democrats have to win by four or five points nationally to uh, break even in the House. Um, if they whereas Republicans, if they broke even in the in the numbers, um, then they would have a huge majority in the House uh, presidency. Uh, for last election, it was the breaking break even point. The tipping point state was about four points right of the nation in general, and that's just going to get worse with reapportionment and because of the Electoral College. So there's huge structural advantages for Republicans, and they're taking these, and they're adding on top of it voter suppression to try and squeeze out a few more points of advantage for themselves um, to get to a point where it's very, very tough for Democrats to win elections. Or, and there is no conceivable path at this time for Democrats to get 60 votes in the Senate. Just not going to happen. And there's no path right. right now for Democrats to break the filibuster. Um, you know, despite uh, Republicans having only won the popular vote once since, two, since 1988 in the presidential election, uh, Republicans have nominated 15 of the last 19 Supreme Court justices. Um, and what makes Which? it even worse? This let me interrupt for a second I'm, there, Brent, because there, there's sure. something that needs to be pointed out, and, and you just touched on it. Today, in a rather appalling decision, 
and it was a 6-3 decision. The U.S. Supreme Court effectively restricted juvenile life without parole by shredding precedences that had sharply limited the sentence in every state. Justice Brett Kavanaugh's majority opinion in Jones versus Mississippi has probably got to be one of the most cynical and dishonest uh, that I can think of. And the reason this is kind of important is that this conservative majority on this court, okay, is basically ensuring that little black and brown kids, okay, will die in prison for crimes they committed as children. And the other part of this is that, you know, the court had before previously strictly limited imposition of juvenile life without parole in 2012 in Miller versus Alabama and as recently as 2016 in Montgomery versus Louisiana. So why is that important to what you're saying? Well, why it's important to what you're saying is, is because we have the conservative majority or minority rather packing these courts as they did under the Trump administration and other places. And it, it goes hand in hand with ensuring that it will uphold any form of limitations on basic democratic principles by a judicial onslaught of decisions that would probably rip away people's rights and freedoms. And in the case of this pretty onerous decision today by the high court, um, you know, it ensures a disadvantaged minority population, even in a criminal sense, would never get oxygen to breathe. Once again, upholding the standards of white supremacy. And with that, I'll let you finish your thoughts. So here's the thing, though, is what we saw uh, after the 2020 election is that Republicans are perfectly, if they are not winning, they are perfectly willing to break democracy. Mm -hmm. The only reason Democrats carried Michigan, despite winning uh, by an unassailable number of votes, uh, or Biden won it, was because one Republican election board member uh, flipped sides and voted to certify the election, right? Um, and there was heavy pressure on him to refuse to certify the election. There was heavy pressure on Republicans to refuse to, certif to, to certify the election in Georgia. Um, and we saw that two-thirds of Republicans in the House voted to overturn the 2020 election on January 6th. We also saw Trumpist mob was willing to storm the Capitol and kill Mike Pence. Good white evangelical Christian Mike Pence, the guy with a backup copy of the nuclear football. And they came within a minute or so of getting him. Right? Right. This is where we are at with the Republican base. This is where we are at with at least two-thirds of Republican members of the House. And we saw after the election, Trump is doing everything in his power, and so is the RNC, to replace anyone who would refuse to overturn the election when push came to shove. And that's where the real danger lies, is once we have an election where – Republicans who are in power because of lack of proportional representation, because of gerrymandering, overturn a presidential election, right, the, against the will of the people, 
because there's no way that Republicans can win the popular vote anymore nationally, just none. And they're not even trying. There's no effort. They're not building an inclusive message. They're not expanding. They're diving further and further to right to energize the base. And when they do succeed in overturning an election, because eventually they're going to have to if they want to stay in power, they're going to have to because demographics and time are not on their side. That's the end of American democracy. And at this point, given the direction of the Republican Party, that looks like an inevitability. And the only question I have is what happens after that? And the answer is either we slide into um, Russian grim autocracy where nobody believes anything and nobody can do anything and protest is useless and voting is useless uh we or like hungary which is this is essentially competitive authoritarianism in a nutshell or states start deciding that they don't want to participate in a non-democratic form of federal government which which i the last is probably the the most positive direction i mean in, in those circumstances because california being a, you know actually a major world economic superpower on of just of itself is that would be the saving saving grace although it would be you know completely breaking away and going back to your point about the capital rioters the one um spotlight that in all the discussions and all the things that people were looking at that happened that day, the one that I think has been given the least amount of attention, in my opinion, is what Donald Trump was doing in the White House for the hours that all that was taking place, and not just doing, but more specifically, not doing. Because this is, this is a person who is still sitting on the sidelines and today is the um, de facto next nominee uh, for the president of that party. And he was sitting inside, not calling anybody, not trying to call off the people who had already broken the perimeter of the Capitol. And to your point, could be murdering his vice president uh, along with other Democratic leaders. And then, after all that took place, came out and talked about how much he loved the people who had done that. Um, and, you know, that is, you know, I know you said before, let's not go to the Hitler comparison, but um, that is getting pretty damn close. Um, Brody, I want to let you get in here on any other questions you have. No, I mean, I think that, you know, some of the points that Bryn raised in the book um, are more than just a cautionary tale. Uh, that progressives need to understand um, that the era of factionalism and the balkanization of progressive politics has got to end because they are up against an extremely well-funded, well-organized group of zealots and religious extremists that absolutely do not care about anybody's rights or existence outside of their own. And I think that Bryn's book, you know, covers that um, and articulates the fact that the, uh, you know, the clock is running. 
And if the American progressive uh, movement uh, isn't careful, uh, then the worst-case scenario will become the scenario, although I tend to agree that it probably wouldn't be a bad thing uh, in terms of, you know, livability purposes if it just got to the point where, you know, some states said, you know what, enough of this. Um, and I, I, too, think that I can very well see uh, California, which Governor Gavin Newsom constantly refers to as a nation state, uh, did go its own way. I don't think it would probably be alone in that regard. But the base problem here, and this is what really people need to understand why they should read the book, is that the toxicity and the poison has been entrenched for a very, very, very long time. This is not these people's first rodeo. You know, they, this, this movement, you know, there's historic precedence. During the Reconstruction period that Bren referenced, they were wearing, you know, white sheets and terrorizing the black folk, and then on Sundays they were preaching from pulpits and gathering at churches, and it's never changed. You know, the boogeyman is the, is the flavor of the minute. You know, the, the right has attacked Chinese people, Catholics. They've attacked black people, Japanese Americans, the civil rights movement, gay Americans, trans Americans happen to be the current, you know, flavor de rigueur uh, of being at the top of the heap right now uh, on a weapon. You know, the de rigueur, let's go to there. I think that people need to pay attention. You know, this goes beyond that. You know, Brent to Brent's point, you know, one of the things that needs to happen is people have to take a hard look at maybe ultimately they're going to have to break the spine uh, of this creature because this creature is inherently evil. Uh, Brent's book does a good job of laying out the argument for it. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, Brent, I wanted to ask you about one point of history that you, you um, talk about in the book. And the reason I want to ask you about it is because I think it's really pertinent where we are sitting in our timeline now politically. And that was during the Clinton years, um, we, there was a, a, a point where you pointed out as kind of a pivotal moment in this push by the right to kind of take over and to create kind of a political scorched earth with Gingrich um, uh, taking over the House and um, you know, and winning the house at that time, um, and I see that as pertinent because we're you know going to shortly be coming up against a midterm here, where you know a lot of the country rid of Trump, go back to you know out of out, they're out of the pandemic, um, get back to normal life, and turn an apathetic lot, uh, eye on what is happening in politics, and that's where the right can actually stage their comeback. Um, can you outline what happened with Gingrich and why that might be pertinent today? So in 1994, Clinton had been president for two years, um, and he'd followed, had a relatively meh legislative record up until, until that time. We'd had, the in, we'd had the failures in Mogadishu, uh, the U.S. and U.N. forces there. We'd had uh, the attempt at, at uh, Hillary Care, as, as Republicans uh, termed it. Um, and Gingrich ran on a platform as a white Southern um, Southerner. And up until people forget that Republicans weren't always white and Southern, uh, that there has been a great shift in 
political allegiances as Republicans became the party of the white South. Um, and Gingrich was exactly that. And he'd been elected to Congress first in 1978. And there's a quote from his first campaign where he was telling his audience, never forget that we're in a war, a war for power. And that's kind of the attitude he's had throughout his career. Um, it's not about right or wrong. It's not about um, getting things done. It's not about passing laws that benefit the American people. It's about power. And after Republicans and Gingrich took over um, the House in 1994, they celebrated at Camden Yards in Baltimore by inviting Rush Limbaugh out as their guest speaker because they believed he had delivered the House to them with his kind of rhetoric. And that kind of rhetoric that Limbaugh invented or reinvented, if you think of Father Coughlin um, in the 30s, who was a fascist Catholic priest who had a radio show that was similarly popular, um, defined the Republican Party from therein. And it also signaled by 1996 uh, the Republican Party drew most of its uh, strength in Congress from the South and that white evangelicals had become the dominant throughout most of the Republican electorate, that you could not win without them behind you. There just wasn't a uh, path to power without them, uh, keeping in mind that their primary uh, grievances were racial to start with and then moved on to the pretext of gays, guns, and abortion, um, this signaled a dangerous new trend for American politics where it was a war for power and the rhetoric didn't need any uh, grounding in reality. It just had to get the base whipped up. And Trump is kind of the natural evolution of that sort of heated rhetoric and need for power in order to advance the interests of the white minority within the United States. And I've, I've got to interrupt you there, and that's got to be our final last word because we are literally out of time. Um, quickly, where can people get American Fascist, Fascism, the book? So, so you can order American Fascism uh, from the publisher, transgresspress.org. Uh, you can also find it Amazon in uh, paperback and on Kindle. Thank you so much, Bryn, for joining us today. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for everything you do. Um, you're brilliant, and um, people need to listen to this. Um, please, folks, do go get the book, um, read it, share it, talk about it. It is important. It is vitally, vitally important. Uh, for those of us at Rated LGBT Radio, we will be back again this week with another incredibly great show. We have no idea what it will be at this point, but we know it will be good and you will want to hear it. Um, I want to thank Brody for everything he does, um, both as editor of the L.A. Blade and um, as producer, co-host here. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in again this week. We will be back again next week, and we can't wait to talk to you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. <laughs>